Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Making Good Biz Business Decisions Quickly. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Marjorie Engel. Marjorie is the Senior Vice President of AGH's Organizational Development and Family Business Department. Her extensive expertise in board governance, executive coaching, organizational analysis, succession, and strategic planning has helped closely held and family-owned entrepreneurial businesses throughout the nation succeed. In the hustle and bustle of today's business environment, it's imperative for leaders to make smart decisions quickly and help others thrive by instilling confidence in them. Making a wrong decision and correcting course is not what kills organizations, but not making decisions or making them too slowly can. Slow decisions cost time and money. They can cause you to miss a window of opportunity, impact relationships, and destroy confidence and leadership. Marjorie, I'll begin that discussion now. Well, I want to welcome everybody and thank you for joining us today. I'm really glad you made the decision to participate since we're going to be talking about decisions. Just some highlights of some of the specific things we're going to be talking about. Um, what are your personal habits when it comes to making decisions and which ones help and which ones don't? Um, what about fast or slow? Which way do you lean and which way is better? Sometimes the hardest decisions are group decisions. So how do you do that effectively? Um, what might be some steps that would be helpful for an executive to make a good decision, but make it in a timely way? And what do you do when you made a bad decision? So the fact is we all make decisions sometimes that don't go well and re we regret the decision or the outcome. So anybody that's been in management for any length of time knows that making a sound decision is a skill set and it's a critical skill set to be effective in that leadership role. So the ability to make a decision and then stick to it may seem like something simple, but we all know that sometimes some decisions have so many moving parts impact so many different groups of people that it's really difficult to do. So think about the decisions you have to make every day. And what process do you use to make a good decision, especially decisions that are going to impact your bottom line. So we make decisions every day and those decisions can drive projects. Sometimes the decision determines that there is a project. Sometimes just the decision to move forward is the most critical one. So you probably make decisions about your expectations of other individuals or requirements for a process. You make decisions about resources. You have a lot of um, opportunities and some of them are good. So we have to make decisions about those. Sometimes we have a number of different things that have to be addressed and we have to make decisions about priority. Or there's always those decisions about how to handle an employee situation, a customer situation, a vendor situation. The list just goes on and on. And there are things as we make decisions that can make us vulnerable to making bad decisions. So let's talk about that for just a minute. The fact is not all decisions um, 
uh, it's not always a good time to make certain decisions. And so there's an issue of self-awareness. When you think about yourself, do you know when you're at risk for making a bad decision? It's important to have that self-awareness and to recognize when you're not in the right space or the right frame of mind. Because if you try to make a decision, then your ability to make a good decision can be impaired. So for example, um, if you have a conflict of interest and you know you will not be able to be objective, um, if you're really in a hurry, maybe you're angry, maybe you're depressed, Maybe you're inebriated or just tired. So successful people know when they're not in a good place to make a decision. And if you're self-aware, if you know that about yourself, you can always say, uh, you know, I need to think about that for just a little bit. I'll get back to you in the morning. It's okay to wait till you know you're in the right headspace to make a good decision as long as you don't wait too long. And making a decision when you're not in the right frame of mind can lead to a bad decision. It'll cause you to skip steps in the decision-making process. But most of the time, most of us are probably in a space that we feel like we can make a decision. So what's our tendency? A fast decision? Do we lean toward making fast decisions? Do we lean toward making slower decisions? And, and which is better? So not all decisions are created equally. There are times it's appropriate to take your time. And there are other times when making a slow decision is going to damage um, the organization. So if you, if you break it down and think about decisions as big, small, medium, it helps provide insight into this question about fast or slow. So let me define what I mean by big versus small. When you think about small decisions, those decisions you make every day, um, those small decisions might impact you for that day or a couple of days. Small decisions might be something like, what am I gonna wear today? We make hundreds of small decisions every day. And those small decisions, you have room to play around with. The consequences if you don't make the decision well, typically are short-lived or, or low consequences. And obviously those kind of decisions we make fast and we don't have difficulty making them fast. There's um, large decisions. Big decisions are typically longer term. Maybe they're gonna require a big investment or be really challenging to execute. Now really big decisions can do more serious damage and Sometimes they involve a lot more people. Those may be decisions you make two or three times a year. But then there's all the decisions that fall in the middle, those medium impact decisions. Those decisions may have a longer impact than your small decisions, maybe a year, maybe a little more or less. And, and those decisions can really impact your business, your customers but they're typically something you can probably recover from if you make course corrections along the way uh, without totally crashing and burning the company. Now those questions are the ones that need to be made in a timely manner, but it may require more effort not to get wrapped around the axle 
with those medium decisions. Those are the ones that can cause us to be a bottleneck, to miss opportunities, and to undermine the confidence in leadership. So that self-awareness of what makes you comfortable in making a decision or what is your typical approach. So that takes us to our first polling question. And on this polling question, I would ask you to choose your one most typical decision-making style. And I realize that we make different kinds of decisions based on different situations, but all of us have a tendency to kind of lean one way or the other. So what's your typical response? Do you typically go to a decision-making style that's pretty directive and autocratic and rational, analytical and rational? Is it preference to you to be conceptual, um, to have a conceptual type approach? Or do you um, get all caught up in details? Do you tend to not be directive, but be very analytical and wrapped up in the details? Or do you uh, like to make decisions with a group? So it looks like we have good input. I'm gonna close the poll. And man, a large percent analytical details, facts and data, 84%. Um, the next group is 11% directive. So um, I may be analytical, but I'm gonna be pretty directive and quick about making that decision. Um, you know, it's interesting because research has identified there are certain behaviors that contribute to good decision making and some behaviors that increase the chances a decision will not be found. So you're going to see some of these different styles come back up as we peel that question back and look at it. But what we want to consider is the habits that make a decision successful. We have also habits that make a decision not successful. So um, this is, uh, these five um, personal habits are pulled from a Harvard Business Review um, magazine article called Nine Habits That Lead to Terrible Decisions. I thought it was kind of funny. And I just pulled out of the nine, the ones that most typically impact businesses. You see, we all have good habits and bad habits, but our bad habits can be so much of who we are that we become completely blind to them. So let's look at some personal habits from this list that could impact your business and could impact you. So the first one is not anticipating the unexpected. Research demonstrates that if we take time in decision-making to consider, okay, what might go wrong? That most of us are actually pretty good at anticipating potential problems but some of us get excited about action. We wanna see action and we miss some steps that are part of necessary due diligence and we make a bad decision. Um, sometimes we get locked in the past. We have a certain approach. It's the approach we've always used and we don't tend to look for novel solutions or a different approach. And when the old process is based on assumptions that have changed, we make a bad decision. Another personal habit that can be problematic in decision-making is, is what the review article, Harvard Business Review article called isolation. And I see that in people when they're not 
taking the steps to go out and solicit and get more information. They're making the decision themselves independently. Sometimes it's because people just aren't really comfortable establishing the relationships that it would allow them to go ask, to allow them to draw on others' expertise. And sometimes it can be reluctance to share credit. I worked with one organization that had had a fabulous history, a really strong management team, and they were facing a new life cycle curve. They were facing um, a strategic change in their marketplace that required them to make some decisions differently. But this group had been so used to being successful that they were pretty resistant to external input. They were resistant to external advisors. They were resistant to the input from their board. And some, and, and you'd often hear them say, well, we can do this. Well, we can figure this out. But they ended up having to learn the hard way sometimes. So sometimes we may have a lack of expertise. And I don't know that that's a personal habit. But if we don't have the technical depth or the depth of knowledge about an industry, um, we may not understand the implication of our decision, and, and it may be difficult for us, again, if we're just consulting with ourselves, to know if the decision is good or bad. And then some of us are just indecisive. We continue to study the data. We gather more data. We delay. We um, want to analyze the data a little bit longer, and that delay can often end up in a missed opportunity. Uh, sometimes it takes courage to look at the data, consider the consequences responsibly, but then to move. So for managers, there's a principle that underlies good decision making, and it's a very simple principle. I want to break it down to you today because it's going to outline some of the habits that are important for good decision making. So this is the principle. It's called fast and roughly right. Um, there was an article called Transient Advantage where Rita McGrath was sharing some of the research that she had done. And she described fast and roughly right as a principle that is much more effective in business than precise and slow. So think about that. Why is fast and roughly right better than exactly precise but slow? When you get caught up in being really methodical and decisions are overly analytical and slow, what's the perception of your employees? What's the perception of customers and others? They may assume that leadership lacks confidence. Or you may hear employees say, I hear a lot of talk, but I don't see any action. Sometimes you become the bottleneck and things can't move on and flow through the organization. Or sometimes you just completely miss a window of opportunity. So it's better as leaders in business to act decisively and then make course corrections in order to make sure people have the confidence that they're in good hands and, and that you do have the ability to set a direction. But the challenge becomes, how do you differentiate between roughly right and really not right at all? That's kind of important. And what exactly is fast? How much time can elapse before fast and roughly right turns into precise and slow? 
So if you're going to try and implement a fast and roughly right approach, what do you think would be the most important thing to consider? And again, I know that you may consider all of these things, but choose the one answer that you're most likely go to response. How would you make a decision when you're pressed to make it fast and roughly right? Is it your values? Do you ask yourself, is this the right thing to do? Is it getting a sounding board and talking to someone else? Is it engaging an expert in the field that can help you? Or is it just trusting your gut? What do you think your tendency is? And I know it's kind of not fair because you'll probably do all of these things sometime, but there's probably one you'll lean on more than the other. Okay, so we have a pretty good response. I'm gonna close the poll. So 58% of you said you would wanna get a sounding board in, talk that through. And then 21% said both, 21%, well, falling back on my values, this is the right thing to do, and another 21% said trust your gut. It's interesting, nobody said get advice from an expert. So that tells you something that, that maybe we're not using. So this simple framework um, of fast and roughly right has some very specific steps in it, and I wanna break that down. This it, there's a three-step process that can help us with fast and roughly right. So here's the three steps, know, think, and do. Sounds pretty simple, right? Maybe it sounds too simple. Um, Einstein did say, keep it as simple as possible, but not any simpler. So know, think, and do are steps you can move through quickly, but you don't want to skip over certain parts of them because you're at risk of making a fast decision, but a very wrong decision. So I'm going to take each of these steps and break down what they involve. And at the end of the webinar, I'll give you a little cheat sheet to remind you. So the first one is no. What is it you have to know? It's a step that so many people miss when they're making a decision. And that's knowing your ultimate objective. Clarify and define what the issue is and why you have to make this decision. What is the objective of the decision? I can't tell you how many times I've observed a management team trying to address the issue, but it seems to spin off into a dozen different directions. The conversation goes all over the place. Does that ever happen to you or your team? So if you find your discussion spinning in several different directions at once, chances are you haven't defined what the issue at hand is or clearly identified the objective of the decision. And I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, Marjorie, sometimes I'm trying to make a decision that has several objectives. So if there are several objectives, then you have to identify which is first, which is the most important one. It's gonna be a mistake to try and weigh every possible contingency and consideration for all the objectives. That kind of approach is gonna shoot you in the foot. So when you're wrestling with a particular decision and you have multiple objectives, how do you break that down? Well, ask yourself a couple of questions. Ask yourself, hmm, of these seven or eight objectives that I would love to address with this single decision, which one or two makes the biggest possible impact? 
ask yourself, hmm, of all the different stakeholders being impacted by this decision, who can I least afford to disappoint? And then ask yourself, what is the one objective do they care about the most? Now, once you've defined your ultimate objective for this decision, then you can move on to the second and third issues um, on the list. A lot of times what you find is when you address the first objective, sometimes several of the other objectives you were concerned about um, were actually just symptoms of the real issue that um, you're trying to address. So starting by defining the ultimate objective helps you sort through and narrow down things so you can successfully go through the next step, which is to think. So what does that mean? Think rationally about, so you may have a lot of different options, but if you have the ultimate objective of the decision, then you can think about how do these options line up with my ultimate objection, or excuse me, objectives. And you can brainstorm options or solutions after you have that ultimate objective. But sometimes we start brainstorming options or solutions or possibilities before we've defined our ultimate objective and it's a waste of time. Identifying options after you define that objective and then focusing on the ones that best align with that outcome, man, it narrows down the best options and it saves you time. It allows you to set aside options that just don't align with that ultimate objective. And that's the first key in helping you synthesize the overwhelming amount of incoming information we're all trying to process and still make decisions. Some people get caught up in a never-ending circling during this phase. They try to sift through all the facts. They, they take raw data and, and try to organize it. You know, raw data is just a bunch of disparate facts or statistics or data, and, and they're really random inputs that by themselves hold little value. That's what causes you to spin instead of act. So the, the no phase helps you organize it. And then breaking down the think phase into some finite steps that are going to help you turn that data into knowledge. So what are those steps? There are five of them. Now, the first one is a situation analysis. So who's this going to impact? What information do you have? What information do you need? What are the limiting factors? When does not making the decision create a problem? And then consulting someone that we're going to call an anti-you. So what's an anti-you? It's somebody who's not you get one or two other opinions. Poor decisions a lot of times can be avoided by asking another person for their opinion. And it's interesting. Sometimes as you're explaining the situation, your objective, your options, you end up gaining new insights just saying it out loud before they even respond. Um, and then sometimes their response helps clarify things. So it, it reminds me of a situation. There was an executive that was representing their firm and um, their interaction with an important community relationship that they provided um, uh, 
no, donated many philanthropic dollars to this community organization. And the person that was the uh, intermediary between the company and this um, community organization had some concerns. The individual running that entity had changed and they were concerned about that individual in, in that situation. It was kind of a delicate situation too because they didn't have any authority but they had a concern about the success of their investment. And so that individual asked one other person that did a lot of work with those types of organizations, with the type of organization they were trying to feel their way through. And just in a few minutes, that other person's input was just kind of like a blinding flash of the obvious. They were able to cut right down to what the core of the issue was and the decision became simple. So sometimes that input from somebody that's not you can help give you a fresh perspective. The third step then is the cost benefit analysis. Can I recover from this? What's the cost of this? What's the implementation effort of this? And this is a good time to anticipate what could potentially go wrong. Then you can decide if you need a backup plan. That's when you then ask yourself, is this the right thing to do? And that's the ethical question. Sometimes we can make an error in ethics if we don't stop and ask ourselves that question. And then the fifth is to have a bias toward action. You have to be willing to decide. There's a law of diminishing returns. The longer you wait to act, the smaller the return. So that takes us then to the third stage of decision making, and that's do. So we know our ultimate objective, we've thought through the five steps we need to think through, then we need to act. So the first thing you have to remember when it comes to action is in the real world, perfect options are a myth. Once you select an option and you laid out your thinking and, and you've gotten input from your auntie, you, you have to have the courage to act and it's time to stop analyzing and select your best option. So for example, I was working with one group, it was a manufacturing organization that had a lot of engineering types in the group. And they were they kept struggling with what they called the unknowable. Well, this is unknowable or that's unknowable. So here's the facts. There's always going to be the unknowable we're always faced with a future that is gonna be uncertain, but lack of action is more damaging than making a bold decision, moving on that decision and making course corrections along the way. So keeping in mind that the purpose of your decision is not to find the perfect answer. It's to help you get to the next decision. So let's move on to our next poll. And on this one, um, again, I would just ask you to choose the one answer that you know is your most frequent mistake when you're wrestling with a difficult decision. Do you obsess? Do you get all wrapped around the axle and get down in the weeds? Um, do you make the decision, but then you get kind of stubborn and you don't um, uh, adjust or, or maybe you didn't specifically identify your objective, the issue at hand, or maybe you just make them too fast. Which do you think is your biggest tendency? 
Okay, I'm gonna give you just a few more seconds to pick the one that you know you most often tend to fail. Okay, so we're gonna close our poll and the um, largest response at 43% is we tend to obsess over unimportant details. Um, we've got a few people that fell into the um, not identifying an uh, objective that was 10% not adjusting, um, maybe being stubborn about making adjusting or maybe getting too many opinions. And I will tell you getting too many opinions goes hand in hand with obsessing over details that aren't important because we'll start getting opinions from people that aren't impacted by the decision. You'll notice that only 24% said they make a decision too quickly. So remember, when thinking about the different kind of decisions, small, medium, and large, what is too slow and what is too fast? So the cool thing about no think and do about fast and roughly right is that it is scalable. It is a scalable process. It works at all levels of the organization and for medium and big decisions, it, it can be scaled. So think about what is fast for the manager of maybe a small group of individuals on a manufacturing floor that have had a machine breakdown. Fast may be an hour or two. Or what if it's a manufacturing floor and we have a bottleneck? Fast may be a day or a week versus uh, maybe an executive uh, at a large company. Um, maybe uh, they need to make a decision that involves a large capital investment or opening a new market. Maybe the fast would be two weeks or six months. Obviously, there's not a set time frame decisions should be made in, but there are things that can help you determine what is fast. So ask yourself these questions. Am I creating a bottleneck if I don't make this decision within a certain time frame? And what is that time frame? Ask yourself, is there a window of opportunity that is going to close if I don't make a decision? Ask yourself, is there a relationship that's going to be damaged if I don't make a decision within a certain time frame? And what is it? And then ask yourself, what are the limiting factors? Does this have to be done by a certain date? Does this have to be done before a next step? Just going through those questions can help you determine what is fast. Because fast may be an hour or it may be six months. And thinking about your decision that way can change your mindset. And really that's what we're talking about here, changing the way you think when you think about decisions. So let's talk about that a little bit. I kind of liked this graphic from Anna Vital that outlined how you have to change your mindset in order to make faster decisions. And, and you'll notice there's six different um, things that you can do when you think about your self-awareness and where you tend to get um, caught up. Um, so let's talk about what kind of actions. Let's take each one of these and talk about some actions that can help us really shift our mindset. So 
The first one she talked about was limit, limit your options. So remember, no is identifying your objective for making this decision and making that identification up front. Doing that well can sometimes take as long as the think and do stages put together. Sometimes it's not obvious. A lot of times what comes to the table or what we're worrying about is just a symptom. It's not really the issue. So I'll, I'll give you an example of one management team. They were concerned that their senior leadership team meetings were not effective. And so they, they, they described their meetings as we get in the weeds, we chase, chase rabbits, we jump from one topic to another. Sometimes we come out of the meeting and we don't make decisions and there's no action. So I sat in on a meeting with them and there was a part of the meeting um, well, at the beginning of the meeting, I asked them, what's the purpose of the meeting? And they couldn't answer that question. So without narrowing down the purpose of the meeting, they knew they weren't focused. Um, but they also did not know what would be expected of them. When they went to the meeting, they weren't able to prepare. They didn't know who would be attending. And um, so it actually took a couple of hours to determine why they needed that weekly meeting. And it resulted in restructuring who met and when they met and for what reasons they met and how often they met once that purpose was defined. So once you've been able to narrow down um, the purpose of the decision, whatever it is, you can brainstorm options that specifically address that objective and it allow, allows you to throw out all the options, but the best that really narrows the field because what you're doing is dividing things into two groups. If you know what your option or your uh, objective is, then any option you consider or brainstorm, you can draw a hard line between that option and the objective. And it makes a quick sort. You can make a hard line between good options and bad options. That takes a lot of bias out of the equation. Um, so you may ask yourself, well, you may say, well, Marjorie, it's not always that easy to determine is this a good decision or a bad decision. So then ask yourself, what are the advantages and disadvantages and, and list the possible consequences, good and bad. Sometimes that can um, help you make a choice at that point. If not, what you can do with those options is give point values. If you think it might be helpful, give it a plus one to a plus five. If you're concerned it might be negative, give it a minus one to a minus five. Either way, what you're doing is you're sorting. And what allows you to do that is drawing a line between the, issue, the option and the objective and drawing a line between good and bad. The next thing to keep in mind is that your time is money. When you start to get mired down or you feel yourself beginning to wallow in a decision, remember that indecision kills. So you have to keep yourself moving to the process. And I have found for some people, it really helps them to think of their time as money. So I'll give you an example. I was working with an organization and the chief operating officer of the organization was completely overwhelmed, completely burnt out. And and he was in the middle of wrestling with a decision about um, what uh, style of pillows would look good on a piece of furniture in the office. 
Now, if you think about the value of your hour or the dollar value per hour of your work, if you break down every hour the way a law firm does, then six more minutes is going to kill you in dollars. That should get you motivated to, one, make up your mind, or two, make decisions about what to delegate. If your time is money, are you pushing work down to the lowest cost level that can effectively do the work? Now, remember, this is a mindset issue, and for each of us, there are certain types of decisions that tend to be the type of decision that snag us. You know those decisions that you would rather ignore. You just hope they go away. So what kind of decisions do you struggle with? Let's look at that in our next poll. Which are the hardest decisions for you to make? The ones that are most difficult. Is it employee issues? Is it customer issues? Is it budgeting and finance? Capital investment issues? Is it saying no? Or is it when you have to make decisions as a group? Which of those tend to trip you up? Let's see, we have, um, yeah, uh, just give you a couple more seconds. A couple more seconds here. All right, let's go ahead and close that poll. So 39% of you said it's the dealing with problem employees issue. 22% of you said when to say no. Those were the two um, biggest scores. And then 17% of you said those capital expenditures or group decisions were also 17%. So the no think and do can help us with a lot of these decisions, but how do you use that with a group decision? Because the challenge we all come across at sometimes is that we have to have a group to make a decision and there are some important considerations involved in making a group decision. There are really three primary ways that a group makes a decision. One is that there is an executive or an authority person that based on the power or position of that person, they're going to make the final decision. But often the person that has the authority may hold back on making that decision to allow room for some degree of discussion or to collect information in order to feel like they've got input and they're really making a good decision. Those kinds of group decisions can be pretty easy. The trick there is making sure the group knows it's that kind of decision. Um, it is really demoralizing to start into a group decision-making process and not tell them up front, look, I'm going to go away and make this decision, but I want to make an informed decision, and, I, and I'd like to hear your input. That way they know up front. If you don't do that and they think they're making the decision, they may be really disappointed at the outcome. Um, Another way that a group can make decisions is a majority. So a majority, we all know, is that more than half of the people in the group agree. That can work sometimes, but it can also leave a minority that may not be bought in uh, or maybe may not be motivated to implement. So use of that approach should be made in moderation. I've seen some groups say, okay, well, then it needs a super majority to make certain kinds of decisions. And, and sometimes that helps. 
And then there's a consensus approach. We all want to agree to a single outcome. Now, I, I wanna make a differentiation when it comes to consensus approach because the outcome may not be everybody's favorite option, but everyone agrees that that option addresses the objective. There's a hard line between that option and the objective of the decision. So decisions that rise out of dialogue and debate and engagement of everyone, everyone's ideas can be a consensus decision, even if the group is going toward maybe not the option I would have chosen. But what that implies is you have the ability to be open-minded, you have the ability to let go of an attachment to your own idea and accept and listen to the ideas of others. So when you're involved in a group decision, Decision, your no of identifying what the objective of the decision also has to include knowing what kind of decision this is going to be and having that discussion with the group up front. One organization was getting ready to build a new facility for their organization and the CEO wanted input from management, but he did not want everybody's Christmas list of everything they would like to have. And so he gave them some instructions about providing input and what kind of input he wanted. But what made his decision successful is that he communicated up front that he was gonna make the final decision. He did not want a long list, the Christmas list. He wanted the short-term things that were most critical to the success of their department. And, and he obtained that input before he made some final decisions. So you've probably all seen the opposite of that, where a group was asked for their input, the decision type wasn't defined, and they felt betrayed at the end of the day when their, their suggestion wasn't the final one. And there are certain characteristics that it's important for us as, as team members to be able to develop. Um, in his book, Ideal Team Player, Patrick Lencioni identifies three important virtues in order to be able to effectively work with a group. One is humble. It means that I'm not driven by my own ego, that I have the ability to subordinate my ideas to someone else's ideas if that's a better decision for the group. The second one, so there's humble. The second one is hungry. Am I driven? Am I willing to go the extra mile? Am, am I willing to provide the input and the extra effort to the group? And the third one was smart, and he's talking about people smart. Because we can make decisions that just aren't very, um, a very good impact to other people, but that's not really very smart. So there are certain virtues that as you look for people to participate in your in your team decision or as you engage you can challenge yourself to look for so we've talked about um, group decisions and how uh, the no think and do can apply in those two if we define what kind of group decision we're making but the implementation part of a group decision can be challenging too so just a couple of thoughts about that as a group, when you're making a decision, before you wrap up the discussion, I would take, I would suggest you take the last five or 10 minutes to crystallize the answer to, okay, what did we decide here today? And write it up on the board. 
put it up in front of everybody. I can't tell you how many times when you do that, you're surprised because someone's going, wait a minute, that's not what I thought we were going to do. And so they didn't realize the details of the decision, perhaps. So um, crystallize what, what did we decide here today at the end of the group discussion, then identify what does each person here need to do to support the success of the decision. Sometimes we go away and someone nods and they say, yeah, I'm fine with the decision, but they're not showing emotional support by doing everything they can to make that decision successful. So making sure each person there knows, here's what, what I need to do to make this decision successful. Then identify the next steps. Are, are there immediate things that need to happen? Are there things that need to happen in the next week or the next month? The, the last thing is then identify okay, we made a decision, who do we need to tell? How are we gonna tell them? What's the message? Who's gonna tell them? So making sure that you communicate that. A lot of times you'll see a senior leadership team go out of their meeting and some of them share information with their department, others don't. The message they share sounds a little bit different. So um, it's important then to go through those steps of identifying a communication plan. Now, when making decisions, as, as hard as we might try to do our best in making good decisions, either individually as a group, sometimes we find we made a bad decision. So how do we recover from that? All, all of us have made bad decisions, but you see a real difference in how successful people respond to that and how people that get all wrapped up and in the weeds respond to that. So what you'll find is successful people course correct more quickly. When you have enough evidence, you've made a bad decision, don't wait it out. Don't look for more decisions. Tough decisions could mean shutting down a part of the business or going in a different direction or cutting your losses um, or maybe taking a personnel action. Remember that was one that um, 39% of you said those are really difficult to deal with. But what, what really successful executives do when they make a bad decision is they fail fast. They recognize it early and then they move on. And instead of um, being obsessive about it, they learn from it. They take away their lessons learned. So let's say we have to make a course correction. We've identified, oh, that was a bad decision. We recognize it, we course correct. How do you do that? Remember, you go back to no. You revert back to what was the ultimate objective for the decision and reset that, reset that, either recommit to it or adjust it because maybe you didn't get it just right the first time. And, and sometimes when we real, we've realized our decision is, is not gonna be successful, it's easy to get depressed or to fret about it or lose sleep about it. So for a successful reset, think about your regrets, but ask yourself, what's my takeaway from this? What's the lesson learned from this? Then be done with it. Because continuing to carry around the, the regret is like carrying around extra baggage. It will slow down future decisions. Whereas if you identify the lessons learned, it will um, prevent you from maybe spending too long um, 
thinking about the next decision and making good decisions built on itself. Once I've made a good decision or once I've made a good course correction in the decision I made, then I have more confidence and I do a better job of making decisions um, in the future. And there are decisions ahead of us, all of us. So some of those decisions are automatic and easy. We make decisions all the time that we we just know. We just know what the best um, decision is. But with the really tough ones, what you'll find is a structured approach relieves your stress. And the more you practice fast and roughly right, the more naturally it's going to become. When you look at decision makers that you really respect, and you think about how they make decisions, you'll notice that those three pieces of knowing, thinking, and doing are always part of their decision-making. You just can't separate good decisions from good leadership. So senior executives who rise to that executive level, they do so based on making sound decisions in a timely manner, fast and roughly right. So that takes us to the next polling question that I would challenge you to think about. And this goes back to the issue of self-awareness. So on this one, select all the ones that you think apply. Identify all the things that you think if you improved on, you'd be able to make better decisions. Do you just need to have more courage and be assertive? Do you need to get better about productive conflict? In his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Patrick Lencioni talks about the importance of productive conflict. And some people are afraid to engage in that. Maybe it's humility. Maybe it's being okay with saying, I'm wrong, or I don't know, um, or I need your help. Um, because what that does is it helps build trust in your team. Maybe it, it's making it a habit to identify the ultimate objective before you start spinning, either individually as your team or, or your team. And then maybe it's just the facilitation of dialogue. Maybe the group is not coming to a decision because it's difficult for you to facilitate that dialogue. Okay, so I think we're gonna close the poll. And the three that come to the top are assertiveness. That's where your no think and do can be really helpful productive conflict, and facilitation of dialogue. Ability to identify the ultimate objective comes, comes right in there too at 42%. So it, it looks like about half of us um, could do a better job of making sure we've, we've done that up front. So we've talked about a lot of different things, but I don't wanna lose the key steps and actions that are really the, the core or the anchor to this decision-making process. So I made a cheat sheet for you. The cheat sheet is know, think, and do. So you wanna know your ultimate objective. You wanna think, which is a situation analysis, consulting someone other than you, your cost-benefit analysis, that thinking about what potentially could go wrong here, what's the cost to do this implementation-wise, effort-wise. The ethical question, is it the right thing? And then you just decide. And then the last stage is 
to do. So that's when you stop planning and you exercise assertiveness, which is much easier to do because you've gone through the think process. And I wanted to make sure this simple process does not get lost in the information that we covered today. Those three simple steps can help us be more decisive. So when you think about being decisive and what prevents us from being decisive, I think none of us wanna be impulsive or impetuous when we're faced with two potentially different paths. But remember the poll, the most frequent mistake usually made is overanalyzing, second guessing, holding back. And that no think and do will help you make fast decisions and good decisions. So in the discussion today, there's been a number of resources that I've mentioned. And um, any of you that would like to have a copy of those resources can let me know that. Um, uh, it just enter that in the uh, chat box or let us know in your survey and we'll be happy to send you out a list of these. But, but some of them that stand out in my mind, um, Harvard Business Review article archives, they have a lot of information about making good decisions faster, making effective decisions, um, habits that lead to really bad decisions. So, and those are actually articles too that, that we can provide to you if you'd like them. Um, one of the authors I mentioned today, Patrick Lencioni, he does a lot of work with helping individuals, his, his books deal with how do I as an individual engage more effectively in team decisions and how do we as a team overcome the problems that make us dysfunctional. One of the things that you all um, identified that sometimes trip you up in making decisions is the tendency to not want to say no. And so you can actually go to aghuniversity.com where you found this webinar. And in our archived webinars, you'll find a webinar about how to say no and how to do that decisively, but do it well so that you're not saying no to things you shouldn't say no to. There's also another resource called, it's a book called Fierce Conversations, and it sounds kind of aggressive, but it actually helps you think about what decisions or conversations you're putting off. That can help when it comes to people issues, whether it's an employee or a customer. What decisions are you avoiding right now because you don't wanna have the conversation? And, and Susan Scott in her book, Fierce Conversations, um, does a nice job of outlining the things that we can do to help us. So if you're interested in seeing that list of resources and maybe a few more, just ping us and let us know, and we'll be happy to um, go ahead and, and send you out a list of the ones that we've found for other businesses have proven to be really helpful and effective. So again, I want to I wanna thank you for coming today and I'm gonna hand off the discussion now to Taylor. She's gonna to talk to you a little bit about getting your HR credits and the survey, but I will hang around for any questions anybody would like to ask.